Very ready. Okay, let's start visualizing the merit field. Buddha surrounded all, by all the Buddhism bodhisattvas, lineage lamas, and so forth. All their bodies made of light. and ourselves surrounded by all sentient beings, and then really thinking that we're leading all living beings on the path to awakening by leading them to take refuge in the Three Jewels. And wouldn't it be wonderful if all the, co- the people who are so confused in the world, ourselves included, but even others who are more confused at this moment, you know, if Putin, if all the soldiers on both the sides were able to take refuge in the Three Jewels, have some awareness of karma and its effects, some aspiration to cultivate impartial love and compassion, how wonderful that would be. And just thinking of your own family and your friends, if they have no spiritual interest, again, how wonderful it would be if they had that interest in cultivating generosity, ethical conduct, compassion, and so forth. How wonderful it would be if They wanted to subdue their own anger. And then when we recite the verses, we think that we're helping them to contact the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha and to become interested in those spiritual issues so that they really want to transform their minds. And the same goes for us, too. So since our motivation is the most important element of whatever actions we do, let's take the time and cultivate a good motivation for listening to teachings.
So, of course, the best motivation is an expansive one, including working for the welfare of all living beings. But to grow there, we have to start small. So, of course, we start with ourselves. That's no problem, taking care of ourselves, wanting happiness for ourselves, abandoning negativities that we enjoy doing, is a problem, but you know, maybe we can get over that, work for our own benefit. So caring for the eye is easy. We expand it to caring for mine, my family, my friends. That's not too difficult because we're fond of those people. We're attached to them. But after that, all the other sentient beings kind of get lost. They become amorphous, uh, indistinguishable faces, except for those that we don't like. We see them very clearly. But if we're going to succeed in having a big motivation that encompasses all living beings, we have to stretch our mind, and include more and more living beings, especially strangers, people in different countries, in different cities, in different universes, different life forms, and of course including people we don't like or people we don't approve of. And so, placing our decisions in the context of what is best for all sentient beings, instead of what is best for me, and then after that, my family and friends, to expand it, what is better for more and more and more sentient beings as we expand our field of awareness that everybody wants happiness and not suffering. And then what can we do to help all these countless beings? We can help them in this life. We can help them learn the Dharma. And we can enhance our own wisdom and compassion and skillful means so that we can really be of great benefit without being hindered from our own side by our own selfish, self-centered thought. And 
in that way we aspire for full awakening for the benefit of all beings. So this idea of expanding uh, who we include in our field of concern, it sounds great, doesn't it? Yeah. And we all want to have love and compassion for all living beings. But on a day-to-day matter, do we think of, well, what is best um, for the community of people I live with, whether you live in a family or you live in a monastery or, you know, your colleagues at work. Yeah, when we make decisions, what's what's the the center of the decision-making? Yeah, whose interest are we looking out for? Yep, this one. Okay, so lots of nice talk. Yeah, but we see how difficult it is to really enlarge the perspective of living beings that we care about. We talked about that a bit during our community meeting yesterday and how, uh, you know, we don't want to vacuum one more square inch than everybody else does or wash one more dish than anybody else does, yeah. or do anything that it entails what we consider suffering, you know, any more than anybody else does. So we, in so many areas, benefiting others, we don't see as joyous, we see it as suffering, It's inconvenient. I have to go out of my way. Yeah, I have a plan of what I want to do and how I want to do it. And, you know, really like taking other sentient beings into account. What a pain in the neck. Yeah, okay, the beings I love, the beings who benefit me. Yeah, I'll stretch a little bit on that that account. But, no making decisions according to what is beneficial for the family or what is beneficial for the community or what is beneficial for my country or for the world or for all living beings. Yeah, my contribution is taking care of myself because as they say, if uh, you don't, if I don't take care of myself, who's going to take care of me? Yeah. So that justifies it all, right? Yeah. We just take care of ourselves and that's our contribution so that other people don't have to bother about us. Except, uh, of course, we're open to receiving their generosity and their kindness and anything else they want to do for us. We're not going to reject that. Huh? But we have boundaries. 
Yeah. I love that word. You know, it became so popular in psychology. Boundaries. I don't think it was boundaries. I think it was concrete walls. Yeah. This is the boundary. You cannot go beyond this. Yeah. And I have boundaries. I cannot go beyond what I feel like doing when I feel like doing it. Do you have that that uh, boundary? I sure do, yeah. Ask me at the wrong time to do something. Yeah. Ask me to help somebody out when I don't feel like it. Ask me to do anything, even something I, that benefits myself when I don't feel like doing it. I'm not going to do it. Yeah. So it's really hard to let go of that habit, isn't it? You know, and it's not just a habit, it's a very ingrained prejudice. Okay, we are prejudiced towards ourselves. Yeah, it's true, isn't it? Everybody is. All ordinary beings, anyway. Yeah. Yeah, we're all biased towards ourselves. And it's very difficult to, to stretch that. And so, you know, in our hearts, we have real sincere aspirations of what we would like to become. And then we have this brick wall, sorry, concrete wall, yeah, that is called grasping, at the true existence of the self, yeah, and the uh, self-centered mind, that kind of impedes us. So we, you know, we need to put some energy into slowly disassembling that. Yeah. And to do that with a sense of joy not a sense of obligation, and I have to, and if I don't, people are going to, they won't like me, and they'll criticize me, and they'll tell me I'm a bad practitioner. So, you know, I better kind of overcome this because I want to look like a good practitioner. Yeah, I want to have a good reputation as a good practitioner. Yeah, it's so difficult to be, get beyond that self-centered thought, isn't it? Yeah. So we just keep working at it. But I think really uh, constantly meditating on the kindness of others. And, you know, you don't have, you can do this in a meditation session, sitting down, but you can do it when you're just walking around during the day, too, and see how you interrelate with so many other living beings and how much kindness there actually is in your world. We eat lunch every day. Do we think of the kindness of the people who are cooking lunch and washing the dishes before lunch and after lunch? Yeah, do we think of their kindness or do we just take it for granted? So if we make it a practice of seeing how interdependent we are, 
then it becomes um, so much easier to want to do something to uh, to benefit those beings. Yeah. Yeah. You receive benefit, then giving benefit is so much easier, isn't it? Like the people at McDonald's, somebody pays for you, then you want to pay for the guy behind you, you know, and you keep doing that. So that comes easy. But we have to be the one who starts the chain <laughs> instead of the one who waits for other people to do something for us so that before we can appreciate them, you know. But to, to look and see, uh, just in our daily lives, people are doing so much that benefits us. Yeah. Okay, so we'll continue on with the chapter on joyous effort. And we were, uh, we've been talking about some of the things that interfere with our joyous effort that, um, make us waste our precious human life, you know, because, you know, this life is very special, not just because we're a human being, yeah, but because we're somebody who has interest in the Dharma, who wants to pursue a spiritual path to improve themselves. So, you know, having that kind of life where we have that aspiration and where we have access to all the cooperative conditions that enable us to follow that aspiration. We have enough to eat. Yeah. We're not being conscripted into the army. We have uh, access to teachers and Dharma books. And there's so many places in the world where people don't have access to this. Yeah. I was told that, uh, you know, because we know some of our friends from Ukraine and Russia gathered together and practiced together, that um, one of the the young Ukrainian men was really torn because, uh, you know, there's this push to join the, the military. You know, he's supposed to stay there. The young men, the men aren't allowed to leave. Um and so there's this push to join the military. There's a wish to benefit his country, but he doesn't want to kill anybody. And so the, the being in that situation is so difficult, you know, on a, on a uh, an emotional level, making a decision what you're going to do, and then just living in a war zone where uh, your attention you know, has to go to just staying alive in one way or another and being prepared to die at any minute. Okay? So, uh, you know, living in a situation where we don't have that gives us so much freedom to to practice and so to, to um, appreciate that, you know? And not find other reasons to distract ourselves in the middle of it. Okay. So, um, we've been going through the innate compatible propensities that make us, you know, waste our, our precious human life. So I'll just, we've done four of them. I'll just review them 
and then we'll continue on from there. So first one, being bound by one's worldly commitment. Okay, so uh, the desire and the need to provide for others. So, you know, needing wealth, needing a degree of pleasure, taking care of kids, your job, your family commitments, and, uh, you know, all your social commitments. Because one kind of thing comes with the with the next, yeah. If you have a certain kind of job, then you need to have a certain kind of spouse and drive a certain kind of car, which means you need to make a certain amount of money and you need to uh, do certain things in your spare time because it's all part of fitting the image of, uh, you know, that person that you're trying to be, okay? So like that, and that just takes up a whole lot of time. Second one um, is having a bad character and lacking humanity. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, just not caring beans about other living beings. Yeah. Uh, just having the attitude of uh, what can others do for me? The third is lack of dissatisfaction with samsara. So we all have that. We talk about the disadvantages of samsara, of cyclic existence. Yeah. But how dissatisfied are we? You know? If you, if you can change the lunch menu and get the kind of stuff you want. Yeah. If you could get even more sweets than we have already. I am shocked by the amount of sugar and salt and fat we eat here. But if we could get more, okay? So, you know, we're not dissatisfied with samsara. We just want to tweak it a bit. Absence of faith in the Dharma or in the Dharma teacher. Yeah. Oh, the Dharma. Buddha taught it 25 centuries ago. What refer? You know, that's it's old-fashioned. What does it have to do with me? Yeah. Why should I listen to all of this? It has to do with ancient Indian culture. Or, you know, the Dharma teacher. You know, what does this person know that I don't know? So, uh, you know that kind of absence of faith. Okay, then, so we've done those four. Then the fifth one, taking pleasure in bad actions. Gambling, drinking, taking dope, uh, you know, going to the horse races, watching violent movies, watching sexy movies, you know, doing things that are, are really going to incite our our uh, attachment and our anger. And we take pleasure in them. But especially, you know, so just let's start with the really gross ones, like the gambling and the drinking. Yeah. And so, you know, people drink, people take recreational drugs. Uh, anybody have a problem with that? You know, anybody... An alcoholic, anybody addicted to their pain pills? No, I just take them casually. It's what everybody does. I don't have an addiction problem. 
Yeah. So, uh, you know, how easy, easily we indulge in things, um, but we totally deny that we have a problem with it. Yeah. I can stop any time I want to. Yes, I know I smoke two or three packs of cigarettes a day, but any time I want to, I can stop like that, I know. Then why haven't you? <laughs> if you know it's killing you. Okay, so because we take pleasure in it, yeah, and when we take pleasure in something, we may know it's not beneficial, but we somehow make the harm much smaller in our own mind, yeah, and this is just a bad habit. I can stop it any time I want. I don't really have a problem with it, okay. And yet, it brings a lot of problems in, in the life. Yeah, I've talked to many people who's in the family, um, where a parent or a, a sibling has a gambling problem. And boy, it affects the whole family. It affects the whole family and um, can be really dangerous um, for the financial stability of the family, which, of course, adversely impacts the kids. Yeah. But does, does anybody there have a problem with gambling? No. It's just recreation. We do it once in a while for fun. But no, there's no gambling addiction. Okay, same thing with drinking. Yeah, and so, you know, you have one person who's an alcoholic who denies it, and then the rest of the family tries to cover up for that person. So then you get, you not only have alcoholics anonymous, you have, what's the other one called? Al-Anon, yeah, where you're uh, the, the supportive person. Yeah, you're in a relationship, or... Uh, and that person can't stop their alcohol use, but you help cover them up because, yeah. And again, it just damages everybody. Okay, but so we, you know, we get hooked in this kind of stuff, and then um, we don't really want to give it up. Somebody wrote to me recently regarding something that he does, yeah, that he sees is, is a problem in his um, practice, okay, and that is uh, sexual fantasies. Yeah. And so he was saying, I don't really want to go off with some woman and do anything. I'm not really interested in that person. I don't want to go off and do anything. But in the evening, it's so nice to just kind of sit down. I have a very good imagination. And I relax when I do this kind of visualization. Yeah, it's a visualization. Yeah. And I do the visualization, and it's very pleasurable, and I relax doing it. And I have no desire to go out and actually do anything with anybody. Yeah. But it does interfere with my dharma practice. And I've tried thinking about what the body really is, 
you know, the foul aspects of the body. That helps for a while, and then it doesn't work anymore. And I, you know, I think about the disadvantages of samsara. I'm aware of those, and that helps for a while, and then that antidote doesn't work anymore. And, um, yeah, so what do I do? But it, it really is so pleasurable, and I need to relax. And what's really wrong with it? Because I'm not doing anything with anybody, so I'm not breaking any precepts. What do you think? Yeah, nothing wrong with it? Doesn't harm you at all? Doesn't interfere with your practice at all? No? Yeah, (laughs) it does, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. But I, I just don't seem able to do anything with it. Stop it. What do you think the the difficulty is here? Yeah. He doesn't really want to stop. Yeah, he doesn't see the disadvantages, but he doesn't, he knows them intellectually, but he doesn't really want to stop. Yeah? Hooked by the pleasure. So he's asked all these other people what to do and, you know, meditated on on the body and disadvantages of samsara. And, you know, I'm the last holdout. You know, what do I do? And I'm going to say, well, you don't really want to stop, do you? And he's going to go, yes, I do. You think I'm going to believe that? Okay, but those things are hard, aren't they? You know, we get a little bit of pleasure from it. And, you know, and then our mind can fabricate so many reasons why it's okay. You know? Okay, so taking pleasure in bad actions. (laughs) Okay, so, you know, what do we do in that case? I think we need to, to um, a couple of things. One is to really, how, how really is this interfering with my practice? And is it really bringing relaxation and any kind of pleasure in the end? You know, fantasies, you usually wind up at the end not feeling so good. You think it's great, you know, you satisfy the itch or whatever. But then after that, hmm. yeah. And and then I think just having um, some courage to try and fight the habit. And know it at the beginning, it will be uncomfortable, but the more you keep on, the more, the easier it will become. Mm-hmm. Anybody else have other ideas? But another problem that comes to mind is that 
I would just always be wondering how his interactions are with people, you know, and if, if other people know that, you know, this is going on in the mind of another person, you know, where's the trust? Mm -hmm. But just, it's just sort of so unpleasant to think about that someone is spending their time rehearsing this kind of thing in their mind and how are they with other people mm -hmm. in any given moment, yeah. you know? Oh, they, they have no wish. They don't do anything. Yeah, it's not harmful. Don't touch anybody. I would start becoming, I would try to understand that this kind of mind is a habit mind and that as whenever you get sick or ill or when, even when you're dying, is this mind is going to repeat itself. It's going to reappear. Mm. It's not something that you can say, well, I'm going to stop thinking about that as I'm dying. The mind's going to pull up the things that we're most habituated to thinking about. And these kind of things can go for, like, I've had parts of my life where I've gotten into this kind of mental habit of sexual fantasies. And it's hard to put them down because they get very complicated. They get very <laughs> wild. They get very <laughs> crazy. And you, before you know it, you've spent an hour in your bed at night thinking about this stuff. And you wake up in the morning totally fried. You know, also, there's a, a form of mental exhaustion that happens when you, when you think like this or any type of proliferating. Mm. But this one, it has, I mean, I remember it's been, it, it exhausted me and I could see that it, it would go on. It just kind of gets really complicated. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Similar to Venerable Semke, it's just seeing that the harm it brings to me is at the time of death for sure. Like if mm. this comes up at the time of death, forget it, right? You're going to follow the same old habit. All the work you've put into cultivating merit and a Buddhist worldview, gone. You're going to be reborn in some unpredictable situation of whatever sexual fantasy you see arise. Could be two pigs, you know, like good luck. Mm -hmm. So that gives me like, whoa, you are harming yourself when you rehearse this. Mm some analysis, but I think it's also interesting to think about the other things that I've rehearsed that have come about. Like you think, oh, I need a new car. I want that Subaru. You imagine that Subaru. You look at the Subaru. You think the Subaru rider can't really afford the Subaru, but sooner or later you get the Subaru. <laughs> or, you know, I want that job. You're not really working. I mean, you f that's how we get through life is we fantasize these things. And, in, and then we it comes to fruition. Mm -hmm. So if, if the person has the, the energy to actually investigate other kinds of fantasies that have come true, you can also see that sooner or later, the right person's going to walk in the door and bingo, he's been creating this all along. Yeah. 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 But also, you know, in, uh, in our Dharma practice, we do a lot of imaginative things. Why? For this same reason, if you imagine being in the pure land over and over and over again at the time of death, then easier for that to come with. If you imagine being of benefit to others, yeah, you imagine washing one more dish than everybody else and feeling happy doing it, then you'll be able to do that. Yeah, this is the whole idea. We start when we're little kids. You know, why do we play dress up as little kids? Because you imagine being, you know, uh, a 
I was going to say a policeman or a fireman. I don't know if kids imagine being police nowadays. Maybe some do. But, you know, when I was young, oh, yeah, the cops were all good. Do you want to be a policeman or a fireman or you play with dolls, however boring it is, you know, because you're supposed to be a mama afterwards. And, you know, why, why as kids do we play? Yeah, because it helps us. If you can imagine it, then you can do it. I mean, athletes, dancers, everybody imagines uh, doing that particular move. And then that gives you, it, it helps you to actually do it. And so we do that in our practice, too. Yeah. Imagining Buddhas and Bodhisattvas, imagining, radi- you know, emanating making emanations that benefit sentient beings and so on. Yeah. So to realize that the power of the imagination and uh, it's be afraid of the power if we misuse it and uh, appreciate the power if we use it wisely. Isn't the problem not so much that that self-indulgent activity, but more the way attention is wasted and is used to reinforce a form of clinging rather than erode the habit of being self-centered and hooked. Okay, so the person is is saying kind of two alternatives. One is the habit of being self-centered and clinging, and the other is... Uh, Attention of wasting our attention. The two go together. Yeah? Why why do we waste our time and our attention? Because we're clinging to something desirable and we're, you know, out of self-centeredness. So I don't think you can, you know, the two the two definitely go together. I, I hope I understood the question properly. The part says, isn't the problem not so much that the... That self-indulgent activity, but more the way the attention is wasted. Yeah, um, it, but they go together. I don't think you can separate them. Yeah. No, I feel like wasting some time. What am I going to do? Fantasize. I'm fantasizing. What am I doing? Wasting time. Yeah. In any case, it boils down to being harmful to ourselves and others. Yeah. You know, it's interesting, the person who wrote me the letter said, I have this problem, it's not really so bad, but it's just disturbing my practice. Yeah. Okay, so that was number five, taking pleasure in, you know, actions that just, you know, it says bad actions. In other words, actions that stir up um, attachment and and anger. It's like, uh, you know, if you, some people, it isn't uh, sexual fantasies, it's uh, violent fantasies. You know, you play enough uh, video games and then what do you dream about at night? What are you thinking about the video games? And, you know, I mean, it, it's, it's 
really shocking to me that you need to spend a lot of money doing a, a, a psychological research project to see if video games increase somebody's tendency towards anger <laughs> and, and violence. It's like, obvious. <laughs> yeah. But, um, yeah, so some people have, you know, that's where their attention goes. You know, this feeling of power that comes from, you know, violently harming others or, um, or, you know, maybe we don't want to violently harm others, but we want to give others a taste of their own medicine by embarrassing them or doing something else. And we fantasize about that too, don't we? Yeah. And if this person hurt my feelings, I know exactly what to say to them to retaliate. Yeah, and we rehearse it in our mind, don't we? Yeah. Okay, so to to just you know be be aware of what ha- you know things we're implanting in our mind all the time, and uh, you know to notice when those things we need to have uh, you know a lot of mindfulness and introspective awareness to notice those when they start happening and then immediately to change them instead of to say, well, it's not that bad and I'm not doing anything and it just kind of relieves the tension and gives me some pleasure to stop that and just, okay, you know, my mind's going off in some visualization or another that is not helping me uh, and so right away, you know, change the intention, put the attention on something else. Yeah. Change it into, you know, your your deity practice and, and you're sending out emanations to benefit sentient beings. But that's so boring. You know? I sat three months in retreat emanating bodies to benefit sentient beings. What good it, did it do? Yeah, my fantasies were so much more exciting. <laughs> yeah. It's amazing. I mean, this is how deep the afflictions are. If we think afflictions are just superficial and easy to drop, this kind of shows they're very deeply rooted. Okay, then number six, lack of interest in the Dharma. Okay, so you have a precious human life. You have all the external conditions, you know, almost all of the internal conditions, but you're missing one, which is interest in the Dharma. It's like spiritual practice. You know, that's for people with problems. Yeah, that's for people who can't handle their lives. They want to believe in something besides themselves that's going to uh, um, save them. Okay, so, but I don't have that psychological problems, so I am not interested in spiritual things at all. It's a bunch of hocus-pocus conspiracy theories. 
Yeah. And I'm going to use my energy to get a corner office and make a, a million. Actually, a million isn't very much these days. Make a billion. Yeah, I want to hang out with the oligarchs, not the Russian ones. I want the English-speaking ones. There's plenty of those. Our former president has a number of them I could get introduced to. Yeah, so I want to, uh, you know, yeah, make it big. Why not? What's harmful? What's harmful about doing that? Why should I be interested in spirituality? Why should I be interested in ethical conduct? Ethical conduct is for wimps. Yeah, they want to be nice people, so they're not going to steal or lie. And then other people just take advantage of them. I'm not going to let anybody take advantage of me. Yeah? So why should I be interested in the Dharma? So that's a really gross example. But then we're Dharma practitioners. Yeah, so I'm interested in the Dharma. But, you know, I really worked so hard today washing all those dishes. (laughs) You know, I can't sit down and study about the foundation consciousness and and the four kinds of, of latencies or the three kinds of latencies or what what are these guys talking about anyway? You know, I'm not really interested in that. I mean, I know everything's an illusion, doesn't exist anyway. So uh, that's good enough. Yeah. I'm a nihilist disguised as a Buddhist. <laughs> okay. So, um, you know, how do we remedy that? Well, we don't really have much interest. Maybe part of the problem is that we, uh, you know, we're not seeing the default, the faults of uh, samsara and so on. But it also could be that we're trying, we need to focus on the parts of the teachings that really speak to our heart at any particular moment. Yeah? And if, uh, you know, refuting the Yogacharyas and the Svatantrikas isn't really speaking to your heart, you know, you can do a little of, of that. But do the practices that really speak to your heart that you have interest in. You know, do the loving kindness practice. Do the death meditation. That one's always interesting. Yeah, you never get bored doing that one. Okay, there might be other kind of resistance to doing it, but it's not that that meditation is boring. (laughs) Okay, so, you know, do some practice, but do something, uh, you know, that that is, is nourishing to you at that particular moment. Okay, then the seventh is being heedless in your precepts. And the eighth is being heedless in your samayas or your tantric commitments. So I'm going to put those two together because 
they both, you know, have to do with being heedless, with not really caring about our ethical conduct. Now, we might say, well, precepts, Samaya, I don't have those, so how can I be, uh, how can I be heedless of them? Okay. I haven't taken the five lay precepts, so, you know, what's the problem with me doing all these, the ten non virtues? <laughs> yeah, it's only a problem if I've taken precepts not to do them. But I don't have precepts. Then why not kill and steal and cheat and lie and do all of them? Yeah. Well, because it still creates, yeah, d- uh, destructive karma. Yeah, it still puts those imprints in our mind. So uh, it doesn't matter, you know, really whether we have precepts and commitments. It's just, especially with those 10, then, you know, it's just, uh, we don't really care about ethical conduct. Yeah. Okay, so th- this thing of heedlessness, it brings up what's uh, called the four doorways to engaging in, in destructive actions. And these are very, very helpful to remember. Yeah. So the, fir- the first one is ignorance. And what it means here is ignorance of what is virtuous and what is non-virtuous. Okay, so whether, uh, you know, if you have precepts, you don't know what your precepts are. If you have tantra commitments, you don't know what they are. Yeah, and if you don't have those, you don't know what the ten uh, non-virtues are. Yeah. And so the antidote to, to just plain old not knowing, yeah, is to, to study the teachings and to learn, you know, what is virtue, what is non-virtue, uh, you know, what are the four uh, parts of an action that make that action complete, what are our lesser negativities, because not all four are present. You know, so the antidote is to really learn and study and listen to teachings. And then you begin to have some awareness of what to practice and what to abandon. Okay. So that's the first of, of the four uh, doorways and how to re- remedy it. The second one is lack of respect for your precepts or lack of respect for ethical conduct in general. Okay. And so this is just, you know, like, why should I pay attention to that? Yeah. It's like, what, what's, what's the big deal? Um, you know, what's going to happen if I do those actions? Yeah, I know it's not so good to do them, but what, you know, what bad can really come from that? And I know at one point in, in my life, uh, you know, where I was really experimenting with doing all sorts of things my parents didn't allow me to do, that's very much the attitude I had. It's like, yeah, I know these things, you know, aren't so honest and aren't so good, but that's the, the thing. The but, you know, why should, if I can get away with it, why should I care? Anybody else have that attitude? <laughs> yeah. 
if I can get away with it, if, if you know, yeah, I mean, the police aren't going to arrest me for this. And, you know, as long as my parents don't know, I was more afraid of my parents than I was of the police, yeah. you know, because I knew certain things. If mom and dad found out, oh, my God, you know, this was going to be hell. So, you know, I was more afraid of that. But if I can hide it from mom and dad, then why not? Why not? Okay. So not much respect for ethical conduct or respect for precepts. Maybe you've taken precepts, but yeah, okay, but so what? Yeah. So what? Yes, I took them. Yes, it's nice to do. Yes, I'm trying to be virtuous. But, okay, it's, it's that three-letter word, but. Yeah, that, that three-letter word has a lot of power in our mind. Just two three-letter words. Yes, but. <laughs> okay. But is one thing, but yes, but is you agree, but you don't care. <laughs> okay. So the um, remedy to that is to really uh, consider, really think about what the effects of our actions are going to be. In the short term, in this life, the effect on ourselves and the effect on other people, but especially in the long term, what are the karmic effects of this action going to be? And so to really start thinking a lot about karma and not thinking about it as something intellectual, like what a nice little kind of formatting thing, but, you know... Uh, yeah, but but to really uh, think about, you know, how come I was born me? Have you ever wondered that? How come I was born me? How come I was born in the situation I was born in? Was it a total accident? Is it totally random? Yeah. Do I think everything in life is random, that there's no such thing as cause and effect? Well, yes, I believe in cause and effect. If you plant seeds, you grow sprouts. If my kids go to school, they'll get a good job. But somehow, when it comes to thinking about our own actions, yeah, cause and effect goes out the window, and it goes back to, um, you know, I don't care. <laughs> yeah, it's not important. So, to, like I said, to really spend some time uh, thinking about karma and how. Look, look at your life and the, the advantages you have and the disadvantages you have. The good things in your life, the things that aren't so good in your life. And trace them back to the kind of actions that you must have done either earlier in this life or in previous lives. You know, and that way you really get a, a feeling for karma that, yes, there is cause and effect on an ethical plane. It isn't just biological, chemical, physical, psychological cause and effect. 
there's also ethical cause and effect. Yeah, and so it's something that I need to pay attention to. Okay, so that helps uh, activate our respect for the precepts. Um, also, if you stay near your spiritual mentor, if you stay, you know, in a Dharma community, if you stay with the Sangha, then being around other people who also have that value, it helps you have that value as well. Yeah, because you watch other people and the decisions they make. And if they have, uh, care, if they have respect for ethical conduct, and they make their decisions according to that, then it becomes very easy to follow suit. You know, we are so much influenced by the people around us. Whereas if we hang out with people who don't care much about it, about ethical conduct, then that same way of thinking comes into us. It's like, well, it doesn't really matter as long as I don't get caught. Yeah, and then we keep doing what that group of people does. So to to really put ourselves, um, to make friends with the people that we want to be like. Yeah. So uh, you, those of you who listened to the talk I gave a couple of nights ago at NIC when one of the students asked, uh, you know, what kind of advice do you have for you know, making a difference in the world. And, and you know, one of the points I, I mentioned was think about the kind of person you want to be and so the kind of friends you want to have. Yeah, because uh, my mother always said, birds of a feather flo- flock together. Yeah, so you hang out with the people that, you want to be like, and so choose those people well. We, it's interesting, you know, how much do we really choose our friends and how much do we just fall into relationships? Yeah. And how much do we, do we really look and, and say, oh, if I hang out with that kind of person, I'm going to become like them. And how much, and, and, you know, be aware of that. And how much is it? Well, that person is, you know, they're funny and they're amusing and they praise me. That's the big thing. All you need to do is praise me and I am your friend forever. Okay. Flatter me. I am a sucker for flattery. Do that. I don't care anything else about you. I will love you forever. Yeah. Anybody here like that? Yeah, that's how we get into dysfunctional relationships. Yeah, as we fall for what pleases our ego instead of really thinking, you know, what kind of person do I want to be like and what kind of person is going to, uh, you know, also have has those same goals and principles and values. And choosing our friends like that. Okay, so that's another antidote to um, lack of respect for ethical conduct. Okay, the third door to, you know, uh, uh, the lack of, of caring about, the third door to downfalls it is, 
in, in our ethical behavior is carelessness. Okay, so we know that what the precepts are. We know the difference between virtue and non-virtue. Yeah. We kind of respect it. Yes, at least by our mouth we respect it. But, you hear the three-letter word? But, but, I just get distracted, you know? I know what I should focus on, but I get distracted. My mind wanders away. Yeah? And, and you know, I just get careless. I, I know what I should do, but I just... I forget. I forget. Yeah. Why do we forget? Yeah. Well, it could be by the power of clinging and craving, <laughs> we forget. Or it could be that we just, um, it's not a priority in our life. Yeah. We don't have introspective awareness that is, uh, monitoring our body, speech, and mind, okay? And so we just get careless because we're not really paying attention. So this is the kind of thing, uh, an experience I have often, of I'll be in the middle of saying something, and one part of my mind will go, shut up, children, you don't want to be saying this. It is not helpful. It is not virtuous. Be quiet. And then what do I do? I say it anyway. <laughs> yeah. So because the introspective awareness, you know, it was kind of late on, on arrival. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like you know, it came, but it, it came to a little bit too late. Yeah. So I I was just careless in the meantime. Or the introspective awareness came, but I dismissed it. It's like, yeah, I know, but I'm gonna do this anyway. Okay. Or I know, but I'm halfway through saying this. I can't just stop in the middle of the sentence. I've got to finish this awful thing that I'm saying to somebody. Yeah. Or you're in the middle of your, your arm is halfway to their face and you say, you know, I really shouldn't be slugging them. But anyway, it's halfway there. I can't stop now. Boom. Okay. So. Okay, so um, here, what the antidote is to strengthen our mindfulness of what we know we need to do, the mindfulness of our precepts, the mindfulness of what virtue is, and to strengthen our introspective awareness, which is the mind that monitors what, are, what am I saying, what am I feeling, what am I thinking, what am I doing. Okay, now, introspective awareness it's very important here to have the right idea of what it is. It's one very compassionate aspect of your mind that is aware of 
the difference between non-virtue and, and virtue, and wants to take care of yourself so it monitors what you're saying, thinking, feeling, doing. Okay? Do not confuse this with the mind that says, okay, I've got to get my mind in control. I've got to stop these actions immediately. I've got to stop my non-virtue immediately. My body, speech, and mind are uncontrolled, and I've got to get them under control. Okay. Mind is fantasizing. Bad. Bad mind. Stop that. Cut it out. You're going to hell. Mouth. You're saying things you shouldn't say. Just shut up. Get that, get the, the, um, not masking tape. That isn't strong enough. Duct tape. Duct tape. Get the duct tape. Shut up. Otherwise, you're going to be born as a chattering monkey. And you don't want to be born as a chattering monkey. So get yourself together, mouth, and just shut up. You know, and similar with the body. Okay? That is not introspective awareness. Okay? That is the mind that is going to boomerang against you and make you just quit the whole endeavor. You know? Because you're, you're acting as some kind of authoritarian dictator with yourself, and there's no gentleness and no compassion and no understanding that, yes, it takes time to do this. I'm going to change. I'm taking the first step. Congratulations. You know, taking the first step, you'll be able to take the second step soon, you know. But instead of having that kind of attitude, you know, where we we're we're kind to ourselves and we still steer ourselves in the right direction we become a dictator okay and that is not at all helpful yeah if you've done that you have surely experienced the result of being a dictator to your own mind yeah and it doesn't it doesn't work does it yeah because we're miserable. Yeah. Then we go from dictator to free love. <laughs> you know? It's, it's like, yes, I'm not going to be a dictator anymore. I'm going to stop that. So anything goes. I'm going to be spontaneous. I feel like doing this, saying this. I'm not going to be a dictator with my mind anymore. It's all coming out. Spontaneity. Okay, and we go to that extreme for a while. Okay, so it's you know the middle way is not ha- is not you take these two and average them together, <laughs> and so you have half a day of dictatorship and half a day of free love. Okay, yeah, the middle way is not. The midpoint between these is something completely different than these two. Okay? 
Those two are extremes, yes. But the middle way is something that is neither of those. It's not the average between them. Okay. So that's how to deal with uh, carelessness, the third one. And then the fourth one is strong afflictions. So, you know, if if we're ignorant and we don't know virtue from non-virtue, if we don't respect it, even we know, if we're careless, even if we have some knowledge and some respect, even if we have the not we have some respect, we're working on getting over the carelessness. So we really care about acting properly. But the afflictions come on strongly, and there we go. We're lost. We're drowning. Yeah? It happens to all of us, doesn't it? Yeah? And you're so firm, I am not going to do that again. Okay, I am not going to overeat chocolate chip cookies again, even though there's a container full of them in my cupboard. (laughs) You know, I'm just going to have one. You know that? I'm just going to have one drink. Yeah, One, one bite of the ice cream, one chocolate chip cookie. One puff of the dope, one one uh, pain pill, one yeah. yeah, and then yeah, the affliction just takes over our mind, totally takes over our mind, yeah, and uh, and we just merrily go on our way. And then after we have indulged with either attachment or we've indulged with our anger, yeah, and and this often comes uh, with with the rationalizations. Well, rationalizations can come in any of these four steps, but you know when the when we haven't caught the afflictions when it's small, yeah, the rationalizations come in. Just a little bit of anger. Anyway, we've been having relationship problems for a while, and it's really good to get it out. I've been stuffing my my unhappiness for a long time. So, uh, you know, even though you just yelled at your partner a, a few days ago, um, but I've been, you know, stuffing it for a long time. And, uh, you know, we have these problems. So I really, I, yeah, I, boom. You know, you don't even have enough time to rationalize it. There's a little bit of rationalization, and then your anger just explodes because it's, you know, it's overpowered our antidotes. Or you're, you're uh, trying to, you know, you, you can see the anger coming, you know, the anger's small. Yes, it's just a little bit of anger. We can still have a very good discussion with a little bit of anger. Uh, you know, because anger, uh, yeah, all those people, you know, at the university who are doing mediation studies, they told me that anger is good. It lets me know something's wrong. Yeah. So I know something's wrong and I'm a little bit angry about it, but, but not too bad. And, 
um, I think it's good I bring that to the forefront. And yeah, it's very good, in fact. And those people really need to know. I mean, if nobody tells them this, then for their, they're really going to get in big trouble. So out of great compassion, you know, I've become a Buddhist, so I have compassion for everybody. So out of great compassion for all these people who are out of control and are not acting non-virtuously, I'm going to give it to them so they stop doing this. <laughs> Okay, yeah, and then we explode. Yeah, either verbally or we explode, you know, the other way. You can explode outward and your anger fills the whole environment. But there's another way of the anger filling the environment. You explode inward, yeah, because you're supposed to be a nice person and not yell and scream at other people. Yeah, especially women, right? You know, it's like we're not supposed to say, say anything. We're supposed to be nice little ladies. So we just stuff it. We <laughs> go in the other room. Slam the door. Freeze them out. Yeah, you have you ever been in an environment like that? In your family? Was somebody like that? Yeah? You knew when one parent was mad because it got really cold around. And you knew you better shut up and not say anything because otherwise the, you know, glass in its liquid state is hard, right? And when the glass cracks, that's when it goes into solid state. Isn't it something like that? Anyway, um, (laughs) yeah, uh, yeah. My, it's, it's something with glass. Okay, I don't know, and liquid and hard, and I don't know what it is. But anyway, it's so cold that you know if you say something, the glass is going to crack and you're going to get it. Okay. Yeah. So we just freeze somebody else out. But I'm not creating any non-virtue because I am not yelling and screaming and throwing things, okay? But the problem is the affliction's gotten very strong and it's completely taken over us, taken us over, and we can't communicate properly. So whether we explode or implode, the ability to communicate is impaired, yeah? And we usually, you know, wind up doing something that, we regret later on. And sometimes we go from being, you know, really frozen. Yeah, you're frozen. And then the person you're mad at comes and says, "Uh, you know, you seem really unhappy. 
Nothing's wrong. Are you mad at me? No. But something seems to be wrong. You know, can we talk about it? Okay, you really want to hear this and 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 this. Okay. Okay. So, yeah, the, the strength of affliction so that we're overpowered. Okay, so here um, the antidote is to try and do our best to catch the afflictions when they're small, yeah, and to catch them and to remember the antidotes. And this is the hard part because we know the antidotes, but we also know all of our justifications, rationalizations, way of suppressing it and repressing it and doing all these other kinds of things. Yeah? So the thing is to recognize it's starting from small, to see its damage, and then before the rationalization comes in and the justification to apply the antidote and to stick with the antidote Okay. And that takes practice. It's, you know, it's like learning to hit a baseball. That's not a good example because I never mastered that one. <laughs> it should be something that's hard. When we, like when we were kids and we were learning to walk. Yeah, it was hard at first and we kept falling down, but we mastered it. So the same thing, you know, these things come up. We apply the antidote, and then the rationalization comes in, and we kind of lose that round. But we did try. The antidote did get there, you know, a little bit, not strong enough. But then you practice it more in your meditation, and then next time the situation comes up, you know, you again try and, and apply it and, and cut the, the um, justifications Okay, so it's, it's a, a slow process. I think one of our difficulties is when we know an antidote intellectually, we expect it to work immediately, you know. And so we have this habit, and it's not just a habit, it's a problem, but it's a habitual you know, affliction that's quite deep. And we expect that by just thinking about the antidote one time, intellectually, that it's going to overcome the whole thing that we've been very habituated with since beginningless time. So we need to be able to, to stick with it and be patient with ourselves and not get into that self-critical mind of, you know... Listen, kiddo, you're just a hopeless Dharma practitioner, and you're going to be born in the lowest hell. So, you know, what kind of jerk, idiot, nincompoop you are, you know. know, What's the definition of nincompoop? Do people even call other people that nowadays, or is that a generational thing? Okay, any... uh, 
comments or questions? becomes really apparent to me that this chapter that we're on with laziness, all of this just plays itself out that it's just too much trouble. Mm-hmm. You know, if there's, if you got too busy, you're discouraged, you're going to do it tomorrow. I mean, laziness is written all over these. So that's um, just another in your face sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. And you can see it comes down to, I just don't feel like it. Yeah, I mean that's the real lazy. I just don't feel like it. It's part of the laziness because it's, it, it's we we can't see the future. We can't see where the karma is going to ripen. And so if we don't, if I know if I if I don't kind of stay with it a lot, it's so easy to just let it go because you don't see the result. Mm-hmm. So that's to me where the, I have to keep really constant the work, not yeah. just the immediate effect, but. Yeah. The future. We don't see the long term result, but the short term result of the laziness is right there in the next moment, <laughs> which is we just continue. Yeah. For the power of visualization, I was thinking about the POWs who played golf in their mind, in their cells, and when they got out, their handicap was about the same. It's like <laughs> there's also the basketball players. One group was told to practice shooting. Another group was told to visualize shooting. And they ended up having about the same result. So we know from experience that visualization is really powerful. It's like your brain can't differentiate between what's reality and what's visualized. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's good. Because you can really see the benefit. Why why we spend time doing that? in some aspects, and stop doing other aspects. <laughs> other comments or questions? I started reading um, Obama's recent book that came out, um, A Promised Land, mm-hmm. and he talks, I'm just, just at the beginning, but he talks about what he had to do to kind of get into politics and, and to build the relationships that gave him influence. Um, and some of it was, you know, going and, and poker nights and, and the drinking and, and just the building the relationships and, and all that was involved um, for him to be able to um, get to the influence, to have a positive influence with a good motivation, but still to see what went into that. It's mm-hmm. like, wow, it's just the complexity of what's involved there and, and the complexity of the karma that's being created. Yeah. And, and um, yeah, I've had people who do business tell me that, um, yeah, you, you have to go out and drink to close a deal, you know, just talking somebody, or you have to take them out to an expensive restaurant. That's not so bad, you know. Um, but that, that you take that off of ta- taxes, but poor people who don't have enough money for food, you know, can't take their food off of taxes. Um, anyway... Um, yeah, very often in order to close deals, gain influence, you know, make it in a particular field, there's a certain amount of uh, socializing that you have to do. And it's it can be quite dangerous because your mind just falls into it. You haven't done it, but you have to, and then you get used to it, and then it's required so you don't stop. Yeah. And it, when you think about it, 
And, and this happens in families too. I mean, why, so many people, why don't they take the fifth precept? You know, the big thing I hear is, but when I go for family dinners, everybody has a glass of wine. And when I go to parties, people are drinking vodka, and I really want some too. But, you know, they don't say that part of it. Um, <laughs> or, yeah, but there's, there's, you know, a social environment, and we are very hooked by the social environments we're in. And so that's why it's so important to be careful of where we put ourselves, what environments we put ourselves in. Yeah? Because we just, you know, we're chameleons. We adapt to the environment and, you know, do what everybody else is doing. Even though when you have teenagers, you tell your kids, don't do something just because your friends are doing it. Don't do peer pressure. But then you do it. Mm -hmm. And this is the way we are, huh? That just means it's good. Anything else? Okay, let's dedicate then. And then uh, we'll come back to the verses in the book next week, with, starting with verse 15. Although 15, I extrapolated on 15, so three weeks we were doing this stuff. <laughs>